conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today's program, History Matters. We'll learn about the systematic expulsion of Native American Indians from the southern United States beginning in 1830. Our guest today is Claudio Sant, professor in American history at the University of Georgia. His latest book takes a look at this very grim chapter in U.S. history. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, we're looking at the episode of U.S. history best known as the Trail of Tears, the forcible deportation of thousands of Native Americans from their ancestral lands in the southern United States, particularly Georgia, beginning during the presidency of Andrew Jackson. We'll hear a talk by historian Claudio Sant. His most recent book won the Bancroft Prize, Unworthy Republic, the Dispossession of Native Americans and the Road to Indian Territory. He examines the passage of the Indian Removal Act in 1830 and the brutality inflicted on Native peoples. Claudio Sant spoke to a Zoom audience for Berkeley's KPFA in April. I was host of that event. We'll hear his complete speech, then part of the Q&A period that followed. Please warmly welcome award-winning author and historian, Claudio Sant. Thank you, Mickey. It's great to be back in the Bay Area, at least virtually. I grew up in the Bay Area. Let me just start by telling you a little bit about how I got into this project. I've been teaching and writing Native American history for some 30 years. This is my fourth book. As Mickey mentioned, Indian removal is a subject I had taught, of course, many, many times, but it wasn't a subject that I had thought about writing about myself. And it's because it's such a familiar story in Native American history and American history more broadly. So what got me interested in it is when I inherited the correspondence, the papers of my grandfather, he had escaped from Hungary in 1938 and continued corresponding with his parents and his brother and sister in Hungary right through 1943. Hungarian Jews were the last to be deported to Auschwitz in the spring of 1944. So there's this incredible run of correspondence and I had it translated, it's all in Hungarian. I had it translated, read through it, and then started delving into the literature and history on deportations in the 20th century and going back into the 19th century. And what struck me was the contrast between the way we talk about these more modern or 20th century deportations and the way that we talk or write about Indian removal. First, there's a sense that in the literature that Indian removal was inevitable, um, depending on your political perspective, they were either too backwards to survive in the face of this dynamic and expanding young republic, or on the other side of the spectrum, white Americans were too rapacious to allow them to hold on to their homelands. So that's this 
first thing that struck me was the sense of inevitability. Second thing is that the literature, the historical literature on, on Indian removal underscores above all the tragedy of the story. And, and there's good reason for that. It is a very tragic story and undoubted, undoubtedly. But we knew almost nothing about the state bureaucracy and administration that carried it out. We knew nothing about the logistics. And so I began digging into the story and one discovery led to another. At the outset, let me say that I don't actually call it Indian removal in the book. That is a term that was coined by advocates of the policy. And as the opponents of the policy observed, it was a soft term. It didn't capture the violence that underlay the act. And yet we have continued to use that term starting in the 1830s straight up to the present. So instead, I call it at times a deportation. This was a word that foreign observers used at the time to describe what was going on. I like it because it, I think it evokes the state administration surrounding the, the operation. I also call it an expulsion. That too is historically accurate. That was a term frequently used by the opponents of the policy. Um, and I also call it a policy of extermination, at least at certain times and places. And again, that's historically accurate. There were high ranking generals in the US Army writing to each other who said explicitly that the Secretary of War goes for extermination. That's a direct quote in the war against the Seminoles in the 1830s and 40s. So in the book as a whole, I make three arguments. The first is that there was nothing inevitable about this. And in fact, the vote in Congress came down to a mere five votes out of 199 cast. The second thing I argue is that this was a turning point. We can call, think of it as a kind of great divide when the United States demarcated a border between white and black Americans on one side and Native Americans on the other side. And then the third thing I argue is that it ought to be understood as one of the first state-sponsored mass deportations of the modern era, setting a precedent for other modernizing states around the world. And I'll come back to that later in my talk tonight. First, let me just give you a very quick overview of the situation in 1830. There were between 80 and 100,000 indigenous people living in the United States at the time, east of the Mississippi River. About 20,000 of those lived in the Great Lakes region and a small portion in Western New York. These are the Iroquois Confederation, Shawnees, Potawatomis, Ottawas, and some other native peoples. Now their land was far less valuable to white Americans than was the land owned by Native peoples in the South. So there were between 60 and 80,000 Native Americans in the South, and their lands extended over about half, at least half of present-day Mississippi, about a third of present-day Alabama, the northern quarter or fifth of Georgia, and a large portion of central Florida, western North Carolina, and eastern Tennessee. So it was a vast area of land in the present-day southern United States. Two things I want to emphasize here. The first is that though U.S. politicians had been talking about expelling Native Americans since the beginning of the 19th century, and of course dispossession 
began almost from the very first moment a European set foot on the continent. Despite these facts, until 1830, there was no official state-sponsored systematic operation to eliminate Native Americans east of the Mississippi River. So Thomas Jefferson had famously or infamously suggested after the Louisiana Purchase that Indians could be moved onto land that he had just bought from France. But these efforts to expel people were makeshift and haphazard. Second thing I want to underscore is that Native peoples were extraordinarily diverse. There were hunters, there were slave owners and planters, farmers, beggars, drunks, teetotalers, Catholics, Methodists, animists. Some of these people lived in traditional wattle and dom housing. Others lived in log cabins like their white neighbors. Still others lived in plantation houses. There's still one standing in northern Georgia. Some dressed in deerskins. Others wore Western clothing and in fact were better dressed than the whites who lived nearby. In addition, they had long-standing relations with white Americans and they had official diplomatic relationships and of course still do have official diplomatic relationships with the United States. So if you were to visit Washington DC in the 1820s, you would surely see colorful delegations of diplomats from indigenous nations who were omnipresent in the city. So it was the planter politicians of the Southern states who pushed for the systematic expulsion of every single indigenous person from the United States and who made it, who insisted on making this a national policy. Why did they do this? Well, these operators of slave labor camps were transfixed by visions of an expansive slave empire presided over by themselves. And they made no apologies about it. They were proud of this. Uh, Georgia and politicians from my current home state of Georgia were right at the center of this. I think they pushed harder than any other politicians in the nation. Georgia, they said, would become the largest and most powerful state in the union, even larger than the empire state of New York, if indigenous land if indigenous land title were disregarded. Even more ambitiously, they said, if native peoples could be eliminated from Alabama and Mississippi, then the slave empire would march westward and the beneficiaries, that is the planters, would amass tremendous wealth. And why stop there? Southern planters had visions of expanding slavery all the way to the shores of the Pacific coast and then down into Mexico. And eventually they hoped to seize Cuba, too. Their ambitions knew no bounds. Why were they so interested in this land? Well, there was, a, in fact, a geological reason, and that is that the Black Belt, it's named for the color of the soil, this crescent of land arcs through Alabama and Mississippi, right through the heart of the Creek Nations and the Choctaw and Chickasaw Nations. It's extraordinarily fertile soil. It's rich in calcium. It is perfect. It is ideal for growing cotton. So this was some of the most valuable agricultural land in the entire world. And so they began arguing that it was time to expel indigenous Americans. And they said that this was the best thing for the victims of the policy. 
Most of them undoubtedly made this argument cynically, but at least a few may have been sincere in this belief. But remember, these were the same people who sincerely believed, at least, at least some of them did, that slavery was in the best interests of the people who were enslaved. So they wanted the land quite clearly, but they also demanded absolute mastery, not only over every single square foot of land in their states, but also over every single person who lived in them. So that meant absolute mastery over their wives and over their children and over the enslaved people who labored on their lands. Native peoples then were an anomaly they were a threat to the absolute mastery of white planters in the South. One Georgia newspaper editor spelled out the connections between white supremacy and the deportation of Native peoples. He said the extension of rights to Native peoples differed from the extension of rights to free and enslaved African Americans only in the shade of color he said, between the two races. Abstractly, he wrote, there is no difference. So that is, if Native peoples had rights, then what about other people of color? And if the federal government recognized and protected the rights of Native peoples, then might it also protect the rights of other people, even enslaved people? In short, the causes of white supremacy and indigenous dispossession were deeply, deeply intertwined. Another Georgian wrote in a newspaper in the late 1820s, he wrote, we the people of Georgia means white people of Georgia. And those who objected to what he called this self-evident truth deserved to be laughed at for their folly. He continued, he said, he knew no other citizens of Georgia than white people and wished to know no others. This is the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are listening to a talk by Claudio Sant, the Richard B. Russell Professor in American History at the University of Georgia. He talks about the expulsion of American Indians from their lands in the southern states beginning in 1830. In the next portion of his talk, Professor Sant explains how the Indian Removal Act was pushed through Congress. Stay with us. So I mentioned at the outset that the act passed by a mere five votes out of 199 cast. Now this was in a house that was overwhelmingly a Jacksonian and only after Jackson himself threatened the careers of several representatives, threatening to end their political careers. And this was a threat so terrifying, according to one congressman, that people treated it like the guillotine in revolutionary France. So it passed by five votes. It was largely a Southern act. And Jackson's future vice president, Martin Van Buren, said explicitly this, this was a Southern act. It passed with overwhelming Southern support. But the South also had an undemocratic advantage, and that was because it had an extra 21 votes because of the three-fifths clause. So the three-fifths clause in the Constitution 
said that for purposes of representation, all free people would be counted and then added to that sum would be three-fifths of all other people. In other words, three-fifths of enslaved people. So as a result, the South had 21 extra votes. So the act passed in May of 1830. What did it lead to? The process of expelling Native peoples had two parts. The first part is dispossession, the act of separating, and physical act of separating people from their lands. And then the second part of this process was relocation to this region west of the Mississippi that they called Indian Territory. So the first part, dispossession was swift and brutal. And I'll just give you a few snapshots. Um, first drawn from the Creek Nation, so present day Alabama. Taki Gehalo of Tallahassee Town was invited to a white neighbors to eat peaches. And this was in the late summer of 1834. There the neighbor seized her, made her hold a pen and told her that she would be tricked out of her land unless she placed a mark on a piece of paper. This was of course a deed signing away her land. She did so and as compensation, he gave her three handkerchiefs and a bag of flour. Now remember, this is some of the most valuable agricultural land in the world. Another woman named Hetzka was cheated by her former husband, who was a white man. He was also the father of her child. He insisted to a government official that he was the head of the household and that the land belonged to him. And this done, he then sold the land out from under her. Land speculators threatened to kill another woman named Suli unless she signed away her farm. A witness met her on the road crying after she had placed an X on the deed. Creek people were impersonated to obtain title, and if that didn't work, speculators resorted to violence. They even chained Creeks in a house and beat them until they put their marks on paper. So vast quantities of land changed hands in this way in the Creek Nation. Some 2 million acres divided into 12,500 160-acre tracts. In Mississippi, a similar sordid story unfolded. In one three-month period in late 1833, speculators purchased 7.3 million acres. I'll just put that in perspective. That's an area the size of Massachusetts, Delaware, and Rhode Island combined. A 65-year-old Choctaw woman named Amaka, who was recently widowed, lived on her farm in the Choctaw Nation until a white man built a house near her and plowed right up to her front door. Then he started taking the boards, the siding off of her house while she was living in it. She abandoned it and then moved into what she described as an old waste house. A 75-year-old man named Okalarcha Hubby uh, described in the sources as an old gray-headed man having but one eye had a similar experience. A white man put a fence around his land and ordered him out of his house. When the elderly Choctaw refused, the white man took up a whip and gave him 30 lashes. Now these were longtime residents, needless to say, and the intruders frequently commented on the age of the orchards. Peach trees measured an amazing 18 inches across 
at the trunk. These had been planted by Choctaws. They were cut down and replaced with cotton. Emma Glashahoma's wife, who is unnamed in the sources, sold her claim and went off to New Orleans. There's no record of what happened to her. He remained behind until he was driven off with a whip. Dispossession could occur at any time. Chapaca, a 36-year-old man, took his family to visit his father for a week. When he returned, a white man had taken possession of his house and turned it into a stable. Now, the dispossessed were not willing participants, and in the Creek and Seminole nations, residents eventually took up arms. In 1836, the U.S. Army invaded the Creek Nation, captured and chained 1,600 Creeks, whom they described as hostiles, and shipped them westward, put them on ferry boats, um, sent them down the Alabama River, around the Gulf, and then up the Mississippi to Indian Territory. Others, refugees, fled south across Georgia, where they were rounded up or shot down in the following months. In the Seminole Nation, the U.S. spent seven years pursuing families all the way down to the Everglades in this desperate effort to expel them from their homelands. Well, the second part of this is relocation, um, moving these individuals 100 miles up, sometimes as many as 800 miles to the west over lands without roads uh, and over lands that were unmapped. So this process was overseen by the Commissary General of Subsistence and he supervised a small team of accountants in the War Department building just about 200 feet west of the White House. And they were, their usual jobs were monitoring federal funds for the purchase of beef and pork for the US Army. The results of this operation, not surprisingly, were disastrous for at least two reasons. The, the first is simply the logistics of it. The entire federal government at the time had about 10,000 employees. The vast majority of those individuals worked for the post office and they would be no use in, in deporting people. Only some 500 of them worked, lived and worked in Washington, D.C. So here they were charged with moving families, elderly men, um, people who were sick, um, infants, pregnant women, they had to move these families hundreds of miles to the west. They needed to clothe them. They needed to feed them. They needed to have uh, supplies at the ready at predetermined depots, and they were simply overwhelmed. So that's one part of it. But the second part of it is that there was a disregard for um, the people whom they were moving. And so at the end of the day, they didn't really care that much that um, supplies didn't arrive where they were supposed to, that hundreds of Choctaws were stranded on the banks of the Arkansas River for months in the middle of, of freezing winter weather 
without tents and with minimal clothing. I mean, th these stories exist by, by the dozens, dozens. The end of the day, they simply didn't care that much. Joseph Carr, a retired army officer who was living in Lake Providence in Louisiana, just west of the Mississippi River, witnessed one scene that conveys the criminal incompetence. When a party of Choctaw refugees passed by his house in the fall of 1831, he said, they were starving. Heavy sleet had, had covered and, and, and bowed the trees and elderly women and young children were passing by barefoot and barelegged. He gave them permission to enter his pumpkin patch and they ate the produce raw. This was one of, of numerous such scenes. Other refugees were struck down by cholera, which hit the Mississippi River in the early fall of 1832. I'll give you another example. A party of some 500 Cherokees was deported aboard a disease-ridden steamboat called the Thomas Yateman in March of 1834. So this was before the majority of Cherokees were forced west, and that happened in 1838. But you can find the journal today of, of the federal officer who was supervising, who was in charge of the steamboat. It's in the National Archives today. And you can just read through it. And he documents day by day the accumulating deaths. April 5th, buried here, the girl child of Oskanish, a Cherokee. April 6th, Stephen Spaniard's girl child died this morning of measles. April 7th, Bearpaw's boy child died this morning of dysentery. April 9th, Henson's child died today of worms. April 10th, Richardson's child died this morning. It got worse. In the space of two days, Black Fox lost his wife and three children. Will Tucker lost four sons. Over one three-day period, 23 people died. By the time the party reached present-day Oklahoma, one out of every six people had died, including 45 children under the age of 10. Now, this particular party of deportees suffered more than many others, but their experience is nonetheless indicative of the disregard that most white Americans held for their indigenous neighbors. One final story about deportation, a Cherokee man was separated from his young child as he and a large crowd were forced at gunpoint onto a transport on the Tennessee River. He asked a soldier if he could wait for his child to catch up, but the soldier lowered his bayonet and forced him aboard. This story always sticks with me because I have two children of my own, and, and I think it encapsulates the casual cruelty that pervaded the operation from start to finish. So this is this great divide. Indians who were inside the Republic were now outside of it. It created a westward moving frontier between civilization and savagery. And the Indian Wars of the late 19th century in the, in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, culminating in, in the massacre at Wounded Knee in 1890, they are in many ways the legacy of this federal policy that was established in the 1830s. And let me conclude here just by talking a little bit about the larger history of state-sponsored mass deportation. In modern times, wrote one Savannah resident in 1828, there is no instance of expelling the members of a whole nation from their homes. 
Now, this is perhaps a slight exaggeration, but in fact, I think the U.S. policy to dispossess was among the first modern instances of mass deportation. Now, forced, forced migrations have a long history dating back thousands of years, but modern deportations are distinct in at least four ways. First of all, they are tied to racial ideology. Second, they are driven by a desire to build a monocultural state. Third, they draw on modern tools of state administration, including bureaucratic controls, such as censuses, and fourth, they are embedded in global capitalism. Well, the US policy to dispossess unfolded some 25 years before the Tsar began deporting non-Russians from the Caucasus. 85 years before Turkey deported the Armenians, almost 100 years before the deportation of Greeks and Turks at the end of the Greco-Turkish War, and well over a century before the infamous deportations of the later 20th century. It's worth noting that state administrators of other empires conducting deportations of their own sometimes contextualized their policies with reference to the United States. So French imperialists began referring to Algerians as Andigen soon after the occupation of Algeria in 1830. So this was a word that the French had formally reserved and applied exclusively to native peoples in the Americas. And then after France invaded Algeria in the 1830, they began calling the inhabitants of Algeria Andigen, indigenous people. So they understood and looked at US policy as a model for what the French could do with the uh, resident with Algerians for how to expel them, how to dispossess and expel them. In Germany, Das Ausland, a leading science journal, closely followed the deportation of native peoples, even translating and publishing some of the propaganda that was published by Andrew Jackson's minions. Later in the 19th century, in the context of the German colonization of Southwest Africa, German liberals looked to the United States as a model for how a republic could exclude, expel, and exterminate. The US-sponsored expulsion also occupied the minds of Russian officers in the Caucasus in the 1840s. These Circassians are just like your American Indians, the regional governor reportedly told one American visitor shortly before Russia deported a half million people. And perhaps most notoriously, during the Nazi conquest of Eastern Europe, Hitler equated indigenous inhabitants with Indians. These are his words, indigenous inhabitants with Indians, and he declared that the Volga must be our Mississippi. So I'll conclude just with this thought. By the most recent estimates, some 750,000 Americans lost their lives in the, civil, in the Civil War. And a few weeks before it came to an end, Lincoln delivered his second inaugural address. If slavery was an injustice, he said, then the war was the woe due to those by whom the offense came. And of course, Americans are still struggling with this legacy. By contrast, the United States has never come to terms with the dispossession of indigenous Americans. It is not part of our national conversation. This was, in short, 
the war that the slaveholders won and Americans as a whole never looked back. This is the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, we're listening to a talk by history professor Claudio Sant, an event that I hosted for KPFA earlier in April. He's speaking about his latest book, Unworthy Republic. It's a study of the forced exile of Native American Indians from their lands in the southern United States. We just heard his talk to an audience via Zoom. Now we'll hear some of the Q&A that followed. The first of these questions is, please reference, if you could, the doctrine of discovery and key Supreme Court decisions that reference the introduction of that theory into U.S. jurisprudence. Yeah, thank you for that question. So the doctrine of discovery held by European nations claims that ultimate sovereignty in the Americas rested with the first Christian nation king that discovered these lands. So it didn't recognize indigenous sovereignty. And it sits at the foundation of U.S. Indian law even today. And as you note in your question, it is it is written into Indian law or U.S. law in the 1820s and 1830s in three really famous Supreme Court cases written by Chief Justice John Marshall. And two of them occur in the 1830s in the context of Indian removal, and and they come in response to the efforts of the Cherokee Nation led by the principal chief, John Ross. And John Ross was really one of the savviest indigenous and really politicians that worked in the 1830s. He was familiar with the halls of Congress and Washington. He, his first language was English, and he certainly had a better command of the language than his antagonist, Andrew Jackson. So the first thing he did was not to threaten to go to war, but to threaten to go to court. And that's exactly what he did. He, he hired the best lawyers in the country. And his efforts culminated in the first cases in 1831, Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, in which it was decided, the Supreme Court decided that the Cherokee Nation didn't have standing to bring the case. But at the second case in 1832, Worcester v. Georgia, was really almost a complete victory for the Cherokee Nation. The Supreme Court ruled that Georgia did not have the right to extend its laws. It did not have the right to infringe, in other words, on Cherokee sovereignty. So it was a tremendous victory, and Cherokees celebrated it around the nation. There was one bitter federal officer who witnessed the celebrations and wrote back to his superior in Washington in anger uh, uh, about this. It's that ruling that in which Marshall had, in the first Supreme Court case, had, had coined this phrase domestic dependent nation. And Marshall, in the second case, Worcester v. Georgia, kind of expands on what he means by domestic dependent nation, but it's that term that still today defines the relationship, the legal relationship uh, between the United States and indigenous nations. Professor Sant, another member of the audience, thanks you for your work and asks, would you compare your findings regarding the treatment of Native Americans by European colonialists 
and the settler colonization of the Americas that was continued by the United States after its founding to historical and current day treatment of Palestinians, their dispossession, expulsion, and even worse from their lands by Zionist settler colonial project in Israel. I certainly read a lot about Palestinian dispossession, but I, I don't claim to be an expert on the subject. I, I can say certainly there are some really interesting parallels. One that strikes me is the ability and efforts of the perpetrators to make themselves out to be the victims in these narratives, even though they're the ones doing the dispossession. And, and this is really astonishing in the 1830s. You can read these newspapers, and, and I think white Americans do actually believe that they are the victims when Native peoples respond or push back and fight. In the mid-1830s, Creek peoples are literally starving to death. There are stories of emaciated Creeks eating diseased rotten animal carcasses and peeling the bark off trees in order to try to survive. And so, of course, they raid settlements in, in Georgia and they do kill some white Georgians, but it's the white Georgians who always claim to be the victims. There are lots of parallels, but that's one that always strikes me, is the ability of the people doing the dispossessing to make themselves out to be the victims. Edward Said has written, actually, has a, a great essay comparing these. Uh, so I would recommend that you look at his work. Another question comes in, were Native inhabitants included in the count of residents? They say two-thirds count of residents. I'm going to take the liberty of suggesting, did they mean three-fifths count? because that was the constitutional clause regarding slavery. And I know the South used that number in order to bolster the representation of Congress. And of course, very much a Southern policy, the so-called Removal Act. Could you address Natives? Were they counted? Were they sovereigns? This is one of the problems from the perspective of these imperialist plantation owners. They're not counted. The only people who can vote... Um, in the South and in the vast majority of states were white men. So the fact that they didn't get to speak for native peoples infuriated them. They could, in essence, vote on behalf of the people they enslaved, but they couldn't vote for native peoples because the, the constitution counts all free peoples, three-fifths of all others, um, excluding Indians not taxed. There were a few Native peoples who were taxed, but you could count them on one or two hands. So the short answer is no, they were not counted for purposes of political representation. Professor Sant, a related question. What's the original estimate of the indigenous populations of North America? I love this question because it's so basic to understanding this history. The astounding thing is, is that the estimates in 1500 differ by a factor of 18. So there are estimates. Today, there are people who work on this subject. There are estimates of 1 million. So I'm, I'm talking now north of the Rio Grande. There are estimates from a low of 1 million to a high of 18 million. Now, so that's incredible. It is such a basic, fundamental 
point that we ought to try to figure out because it's really hard to know the history of the continent unless we can figure this out. I would say the kind of consensus figure now among historians is somewhere between six and eight million, but that could change because it certainly has changed over the past decade. I think it's actually probably been trending lower. So, you know, I wouldn't put too much stock in current estimates. It it could easily change again. Another of our attendees asks, how do you explain the cruelty of the state, soldiers, and civilians against indigenous peoples? Our audience member says that they understand some was driven by racism, but what about empathy and kindness? And and I would add to that, you do talk a bit about the so-called policies of civilizing indigenous peoples. This is the single most controversial issue to face the United States up to that point. There's tremendous opposition. It generates the first mass petition campaign to Congress. There are hundreds and hundreds of petitions signed by thousands of people. It sparks the first uh, petition campaign by women who were not seen to have a role in politics. So it's really quite an extraordinary moment. Now, the resistance is... I think in many ways, driven by indigenous politicians who had laid the groundwork over the previous two decades. They, they went on speaking tours in the north. A lot of it was rooted in northern churches who were very much invested in, as you say, civilizing native peoples. By that, they meant turning them into Christians. So there was a lot of opposition. I'll say two more things about this. The federal officials in Washington are an interesting crowd because they are overseeing this tremendous experiment with the lives of humans from this distance. And as they are doing it, they are fixated on procedure. I mentioned the Commissary General of Subsistence who oversees the whole operation. He's pinching pennies. He wants to make sure every invoice is perfect. Whether it favors or disfavors the government, he wants all of the numbers to add up. He writes to his field agents and he says, everything you send me has to be properly headed uh, and addressed and it has to be folded uh, in, in three. So, you know, they're fixated on making sure that the bureaucracy is functioning as it is supposed to. Now, the actual soldiers on the ground have a different experience, of course. The vast majority don't, didn't record their experiences. Some we know from, from their actions, and I described some of them, were clearly just extraordinarily vicious uh, and uncaring. There are others who were disgusted by the whole thing. There was a soldier who was in the Seminole War. His journal is in Mills College in Oakland. I don't know how it ended up there. And he was just deeply cynical about the, about the whole thing. He thought that the United States, he said the whole thing was a farce. It was a gross injustice. He was disgusted by his participation in it. And he ended up sinking into depression and he drank himself to death. I think he died when he was in his early 40s. And he's buried actually about a mile from my house in Athens, Georgia. Professor Sant, one of our attendees, asks about Wall Street and City of London speculating on the future dispossession of Indian lands. They want to know what the mechanics of that was. It's complicated. Like anytime you're talking about financial instruments, it gets complicated. But um, I'll just try to sketch it out roughly. This is one of the things 
I found um, in, in digging into the story, I mean, I think of it, I think we think of it largely as a Southern story and for good reason, but Wall Street was also right at the center of it. I mean, that really surprised me. The Choctaws and the Creeks, by the terms of their treaties, because each nation had to sign a treaty with the United States in which they agreed to exchange their lands for lands in the West. So the treaties of the Creeks and the Choctaws gave them the right to retain their farms, their homelands. So not the vast extent of their nation, but depending on the treaty, each family, each head of the family could have a single farm varying from 160 acres to 640 acres, depending on how many children they had. They could remain in the states of Alabama and Mississippi. They would have had to give up their sovereignty. They would have had to become citizens of the state. So the remarkable thing is, is that at least half of the citizens of the Choctaw Creek nations wanted to stay in their traditional homelands. So this is where Wall Street comes into play because they want this land. You can buy this land on the cheap. You can buy it for $1.25 an acre. And in fact, that's the minimum price by law in the 1830s. Um, but um, they don't even end up paying that. In many cases, they pay pennies per acre or in fact, don't pay anything. So capital, these Wall Street bankers just about every one of them, they form these joint stock companies capitalized with between $500,000 and $2 million. That doesn't sound like a lot today. It was a lot in the 1830s. It made it a large corporation. They sent down agents to Mississippi and Alabama and they, they flooded this region with capital. And that, that's what led to this conflagration of violence because these operatives just moved through the Creek and Choctaw nations doing whatever they could to, to secure this land. There were bonds that were sold in London as well, speculating in the expansion of cotton plantations into indigenous territory in Alabama and Mississippi. And this expanded, I think, across um, onto continental Europe too. So it's really just this fascinating story. You can see capital moving into this region. This is the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, and I'm your host, Mickey Huff. For the hour today, we've been listening to a conversation with historian Claudio Sant. His recent book, Unworthy Republic, The Dispossession of Native Americans and the Road to Indian Territory, winner of this year's Bancroft Prize. Up next, we'll hear the remainder of Questions and Answers with Professor Sant. Stay tuned. Professor Sant, can you say more about indigenous resistance? As one of our audience members asks, indigenous resistance to state-sponsored genocide, expulsion, and land theft. And I would tack on to that 
the significance of the counter propaganda efforts, particularly the Cherokee Phoenix and indigenous media of the time to counter the propaganda from the Jacksonian era. I talked about this petition campaign organized by white folks in the North, but as I said, it's really cultivated by indigenous politicians and activists and intellectuals. And that's um, at least a two decade long project in the early 19th century. I think when we talk about resistance, we can divide it into these two categories. There's waging war, Black Hawk does that in 1832 and 1833. The Creeks do that in 1836. The Seminoles do that in the Second Seminole War between 1835 to 1842. So that's one kind of resistance. And then the second kind is what a friend of John Ross's, again, the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, what a friend of John Ross's calls intellectual warfare. And so that's what John Ross and a lot of other indigenous politicians decide to wage. Compare Ross with Blackhawk, as I do in my book. Blackhawk had never been to Washington, D.C., didn't know the workings of Congress, didn't understand how large the population was in the United States, didn't really have a sense of the power, the capital that was coming in from Europe, the financing and power of the U.S. Army, He didn't have that perspective, whereas Ross saw all of that, believed that his best hope was going to the Supreme Court. You know, at the the end of the day, he was at least partially wrong or disappointed, but, but he's fighting up to the day that federal troops move into the Cherokee Nation to start rounding up Cherokees. And in fact, it looks... Even in late 1837 and early 1838, it seems like there's still a possibility, from my perspective today, you know, he really could have worked out some sort of compromise where the Cherokees might have been able to um, hold on to at least a portion of their indigenous homelands. And I should add, there were Cherokees who resisted by simply hiding out in the mountains in Western North Carolina. And that's why there's the Eastern Band of Cherokees today. Fully sovereign indigenous nation living in North Carolina. Another one of our attendees asked, what could we do for children to learn this history? I can just look at at the way history has been taught, Native history, American history, in my own department, how it's changed over the course of the last 30 years. The department itself is much more diverse, and it's our generation that's writing history. And and that does, it takes time, but it does have an impact on the way it's taught in schools. I know still in Georgia today, kids learn about the tragedy of Indian removal, but there's no real sense of, of just how transformative it was for Indigenous peoples and for the United States. I don't think there's a sense of the connection to the expansion of slavery. I don't think there's a sense that it set the stage for the Civil War, that it it led to the breakup of the families of enslaved people in the Chesapeake because they were shipped in by the tens of thousands to to work on indigenous lands in Alabama and Mississippi. You know, they have a sense of none of that at the moment. But I do think things are changing. You know, one final thought about this is that the number of people who write this history who are themselves indigenous is growing significantly. And there are several just outstanding 
highly accomplished historians who are indigenous and position with positions at Yale and Harvard, among other places. And so that's, you know, that's really changing the way we think and talk about this history as well. Another question, do you know how many Choctaws remain in Mississippi and how that may have happened? I mentioned that some, by the terms of their treaty, they were allowed to remain. So thousands tried to remain. The vast majority of them were cheated out of their lands. And and they, most of those decided to move west. Now, a few hundred of them remained. Um, Some of them perhaps had held on to some land, but the vast majority of those just lived on wastelands, what were called wastelands, lands that really were not suitable for farming. And they carved out a, a really quite difficult life in the antebellum era and then post-Civil War era. That population, again, numbered in the hundreds. Maybe it's, we don't have many records about this, about this or part of the history, but 400, 500 folks. Uh, and, and that population has since grown and that there now is a sovereign Choctaw nation of Mississippi. So another one of our participants this evening asks um, about uh, Canadian Indigenous children being separated from their parents and their culture scrubbed in Anglo schools and ask if that also happened in the United States. They say something makes them think that it did happen, but they wondered if you could could address that. Yeah, it did happen. Um, it certainly did happen. And there's, and there's, but there's some interesting writing about this um, by Indigenous scholars Sanina Lama Lima um, wrote a great book about it. Um, and, and so um, she and other scholars have, have said that in, in some ways in the 20th century, these boarding schools led ironically to a, a kind of birth of, of pan-Indianism because these kids came from all across the country from their homelands um, and, and they were put into these boarding schools. And, and some of the stories they tell uh, certainly are, are just awful about being beaten and not allowed to speak their indigenous languages. Um, but Sanina has dug into the records and has, has you know, she, she makes the case that in fact they, they bonded and that, that this was important in fostering this pan-Indianism that, that became so important later um, in the 20th century. I have a friend in the Creek Nation and I'm quite elderly now who was sent off to boarding school. And he said his parent, he was impoverished, a Creek person. Um, he said his parents sent him off because it was the only way he could, he could eat um, you know, full meals. Oh, Professor Sant, um, coming into the last question, Uh, here for the evening, which is maybe a winding one, but then also uh, a kind of question that we we like to end on in terms of how can we use this history? What can we do with this information? Because this history has led to these situations that we see now. And if you go through the 19th century, um, you know, you, you, you discuss this as the quote, Indian Removal Act. And of course, right from the outset of your book, you decry the euphemistic nature of that language and you rightfully refer to this as um, either de- deportations, expulsion, or extermination. And going through the Civil War period, right, um, when President Lincoln uh, had the um, t- targeted killing of 30 plus 
uh, indigenous leaders, uh, right? The battle went on unabated, right? The extermination of indigenous people wasn't even interrupted by the civil war. Um, it led to the Dawes Severalty Act, right? The, the whole reservation movement leading to the, the horrific uh, acts at Wounded Knee through 1924 and the Origins Act for citizenship. Uh, even at the work that we do at Project Censored, um, just this year, two of our top stories, um, one was on indigenous trauma and suicide from the legacy of colonialism. This is a recent story. And our top underreported story this year was on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And so this legacy, if you will, right, from this, this history is what we face. And one of our participants says, what can we collectively and individually do to help heal what they call a horrific genocide committed against indigenous peoples? That's, um, a, I think, a subject for a whole evening. I think the unfortunate fact is that these indigenous issues come to the fore all too rarely and all too briefly. And we saw that with the pipeline that was all over the news several years ago. And, and then it vanished. There was a lot of hope that that was going to be a, a kind of turning point. And I think even in, indigenous activists had some hope that this would be a moment where they could generate a kind of long-term movement that would gain some attention in this kind of broader political discussions. But it does seem to me all too infrequent that these issues are discussed. So perhaps with our new Secretary of Interior, that will begin to change. But I think the best thing that we can do is educate ourselves and educate our friends and and then, as I said earlier, engage in discussions with Indigenous nations about how we can atone, pay for reparations, move forward, given the history that has unfolded and that sits at the foundation of the United States. Claudio Sant, thank you again so much for being with us. Your book, Unworthy Republic, The Dispossession of Native Americans and the Road to Indian Territory. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archived programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Unthinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised another guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little boys in the weapons manufacturing.